This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Richard Murray. He's the CEO and co-founder of Orca Computing. Richard received his PhD in coherent quantum control of cold rubidium atoms, but left academia to be an optical engineering consultant at TTP in Cambridge in the UK. Richard thought he'd left quantum for good, but he was called back to start and lead Innovate UK's activities in quantum technologies, a 32 million pound program. Richard worked on the first proposal, the Quantum Manifesto, for the 1 billion euro EU quantum technologies flagship. Richard's company, Orca Computing, is developing photonic quantum computers with a focus on building systems that are able to use existing telecoms components as much as possible, including optical fiber switches. Orca's distinguished team has identified that short-term quantum memories could synchronize photonic operations, performing what is known as spectral multiplexing, and we'll get into that with Richard in a moment. Orca has gone on to deliver multiplexing over spectral and spatial channels as well, all of which can be brought together to achieve more scalable photonic quantum computers. Orca also develops near- and long-term software, in the near term focusing on identifying applications in machine learning, and in the long term, bringing down the resource requirements for error-corrected photonic quantum systems. So welcome, Richard, and thanks for joining me. I'm delighted you're here. Thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. I would like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey. So my objective is certainly twofold, to give our audience a sense of what you did before you co-founded Orca Computing, but also to more broadly orient our audience to the fact that there are many ways and various paths that people have taken to get into the field of quantum information science. So if you could please share with our listeners a bit, a bit about your background and path so far, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, what you studied, and insight into the companies or organizations where you worked or did research. Absolutely, happy to help. And we've been in many sort of careers talks where you've probably heard this a few times, my career journey is quite different maybe to your normal quantum co-founder, and that maybe might be inspiring maybe to some, or it might be interesting to others. Yes, inspiring. Um, Absolutely. Please. (laughs) I've done a lot of non-quantum stuff (laughs) before. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So let me start. So yeah, I suppose fortunately I'm the the, the child of two uh, science teachers. So my parents both taught physics and chemistry and inspired me to love science, to be honest, at a very early age. Um, Did the usual thing, a university in a university degree in physics and PhD in physics. Spent a lot of time in the dark playing around with lasers, like probably many of your audience have. But I, now I'm normally quite honest with people about this. I didn't get on with academia. I don't. It, I didn't find it sort of fulfilling in the way that some people do. It sort of always lacked something to me. And yeah. This is back working in quantum when I mean I wrote my PhD and I wrote a bunch of stuff about how laser systems could be miniaturized and made cost effective for commercial applications. And I still remember my PhD supervisor putting a big red pen through it and just writing irrelevant or something. (laughs) This is in the days of before quantum was like a commercial thing. It was all about exploring the limits of fundamental science. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Oh my. Yeah. Yeah. Those were the old days, you know, luckily quantum has moved on a bit since then. Yeah. Um, But I then did go and 
as you said in your introduction, got when I got a job working as a consultant, turning a lot of off, uh, sort of cutting edge science, a lot of optical science into new products and services for big multinationals. So I often say my, my claim to fame, I helped Oakley look at nanostructured polarizing uh, devices for their sunglasses, which cool. was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, also, you know, helped uh, one major uh, razor manufacturer look at laser sharpening of their razor blades and lots of lots of cool projects that involved a lot of early stage science, but really applying it to how they can provide value, how can they make new products and things like this. And then in your introduction, you mentioned I then sort of joined, I went to go and work for government or a part of government back in 2013 to launch sort of the very first quantum initiative, I think, worldwide. And so I was involved in Innovate UK. I worked very closely with Sir Peter Knight and Ian Wormsley, who sort of had the, back then, no one really thought that quantum was a, was a commercial thing and sort of helped get off the ground this commercial um, project, program, to get companies into quantum technologies. And, and then the final bit is, in that process, I met Ian, Professor Ian Wormsley, I met Josh Nunn, and then when it came to me leaving uh, government, um, I always wanted to start a company, and so you know they approached me. We worked together on this awesome new new idea they had for photonic quantum computing, and yeah, Orca was founded. So then, 2019, we founded Orca together. Yeah, always sort of really interested, fantastic science coming out of the University of Oxford, and then they brought me in to take that sort of revolutionary science and turn it into a company, and then grow the company, and um, oh. rest is history. Fantastic. No, so thank you for sharing that. I always like to ask, you know, how you came to start the company. So, you know, you said that uh, you met these two brilliant scientists, but wondering, I mean, there must have been some revelation like it's, you know, it's time. I'm, enough with the professor putting the red pen through the writing on the dissertation. Like, you know, this is sort of a seminal moment where we could actually turn this technology into something viable. Right? Was that like a, I wonder if a conversation yeah. maybe with a client or a colleague at TPP or. Yeah. You know, it's weird, strangely, I suppose there are a few different perspectives here. I mean, I wasn't the academic who came up with the technology that Orca's using, but maybe that's the that's the sort of the story that most people are used to hearing. So, on that side, um, Ian and Josh had been working together on quantum memories. So these are devices that store single photons. They're the sort of future of very large quantum communication networks. So they were really pushing it to for the future of quantum communications. But strangely, because of the way that the funding had worked, their group had been forced together with a quantum information group, a quantum computing huh. group. And Interesting. It was, yeah, it was really cool. It was only then that they worked out that actually one of the, the properties of the memory that they'd invented for was actually not at all suitable for communications. It's very short-term memory. Um, but actually, weirdly, because it came together with this other group, they worked out that it solved quite a fundamental scaling problem with photonic quantum computing. So their side of the story is really interesting. They patented everything, um, and that was the sort of technical foundations for the company. I, I guess my perspective, because I wasn't the academic behind the idea, I also had my own journey. I, I went and looked at lots of different types of quantum technologies. So because I'd been involved in all of them when working for government, I looked at quantum sensors, quantum communications, and quantum computing, and a few different things happened. I sort of really understood the importance of quantum computing so i sort of got to got to grips with the, the motivation from a business perspective about how challenging future compute is without quantum computing and that sort of excited me and then everything came together when ian and josh approached me with this 
sort of quite different way of doing quantum computing. And that novelty really attracted me. It wasn't something that was similar to things that exist, had existed before. It was something genuinely quite new. So those, those are our two different perspectives. And then we knew each other, so we both got together. And then our two perspectives like collided when we yeah. started the company. Great. I love that. Perspectives colliding. And here, here we are. <laughs> exactly. uh, let's talk about PT1, your quantum computer. We, we'd said earlier, you know, you started out sort of in, in one space and now we're building out a stack, including a computer and software. We'll talk about software in a moment. But I read um, Orca's novel proprietary quantum memory technology allows you to build room temperature quantum computers using optical fiber and industry standard components. Uh, because photonic quantum computing does not require complex engineering, such as advanced cryogenic cooling and dilution refrigerators, uh, it's easier to integrate with existing hardware in a data center environment. So I'd like to get your take on you know, how this might transform existing compute models at a meta level, certainly hardware and in a data center, uh, you know, server farm kind of a setting. Uh, there's a few different things there to unpick. I, I guess some of your listeners might be want, sort of want to be updated on photonics, I guess, in general. So photonics, because photons sort of are so much more robust, they interfere much less with the environment. They, in, in some ways, they can be very different to other forms of qubits, so superconducting qubits and iron trap. I guess, generally speaking, you have to worry a lot less about them interfering with the environment. They, and so they, crudely, they don't need to be cryogenically cooled photons to be carriers of quantum information. They don't need to be put in a vacuum. They can just sort of be... And in our sense, they can be as they are in optical fibers, so normal technology. So I guess that's a sort of fundamental advantage. Yeah. Within Orca, we've been keen to sort of make take take advantage of, of that advantage as much as we can. I mean, and what I mean is that when you really go and talk to people who own data centers who really run computing hardware, um, you know, there are some things that are really easy for them to imagine. Like, you know, they'll, they'll install new server racks without having to worry too much about sort of new infrastructure. And on that spectrum, there are some things that they worry a great deal about and very exotic new types of hardware are not, are not automatically easy for them to understand how it works. And I think this is sort of a bit of a major thing for the quantum industry to understand. Like, if, if, if people are actually looking to adopt quantum computers... And in my view, they will look to adopt quantum computers inside of data centers. I don't think it would be that realistic to imagine that quantum computers will exist without anything else around them in isolation. So if you imagine a quantum computer being surrounded by existing sort of high-performance computing devices, which is sort of how we imagine things, they're going to be really worried about certain sort of fairly mundane or seemingly mundane things like do I need to worry about the fact it's cryogenically cool? Do I worry about, need to worry about how I'm going to supply this thing with helium in a room where we prefer people not to be because any, any person inside a data center, as anyone in sort of working in this field knows, is like a major security vulnerability. Yeah. So how do I worry about this thing working without it needing to be maintained sort of every other day or something? So, you know, that, maybe some of your listeners might be wondering what, where I'm going with this. All of these sort of seemingly minor things if you can build your technology so that they don't need to be, I don't know, cryogenically cooled or maintained or sort of with, with people nearby sort of I don't know, monitoring or connecting them, maybe can be major sort of overcome major barriers to people actually adopting quantum computers, particularly in this near-term regime where people are just trying to 
get hold of them, see how they work, explore, and also explore how they might work in conjunction with existing technologies in this right. sort of hybrid quantum world. Yeah. Let's talk about roadmap for a moment. Um, in June, Orca secured a $15 million Series A round, congrats, uh, led by a syndicate of top European deep technology investors. Can you share with our listeners some insight into how you'll use this funding to grow and expand the business model and maybe go to market capabilities? You know, we talked earlier that you've the company has grown from sort of memory to full stack. Where do you see, you know, this investment being applied to to grow the model even further? Yeah, I mean, we're really lucky. It's, I, I don't know if anyone in the quantum industry re- realizes how lucky we all are. I mean, the numbers we're talking about here are really significant investments in deep tech. So us, our, our investment included, like we're really thankful and lucky to be in the position we're in. Um, so I guess our roadmap is sort of contains a few different elements to it. One which will sound familiar to many sort of other types of companies. We are continuing to scale our quantum systems. So we still believe, as many do, that the long-term future of quantum computing does require many, many qubits, millions of qubits. It does require error correction. Um, so we, we carry on with what you might call sort of R&D activities to, to, to continue that scaling. The photonics platform we've got, we're really excited. It does sort of naturally lend itself to, to scaling up. So photonics at the moment has fewer numbers of qubits. So everyone probably People might know that, um, but the scaling challenges are less to getting to a million qubits and, and beyond. So we're excited about that. Just raw you know, scaling. Let's get these systems to be big and yeah. therefore useful for big, big types of problems. I'd say the sort of unique element of Orca's plan, business model, if you like, is we also do have this product in the short term. And I, I will admit this is a little bit controversial to some audiences, but um, you know, the system we have, we have a system that we've sold to the MOD and other people like that. People are interested in it um, and interested in it to sort of explore what they can do with it now. So we are interested, again, somewhat controversially, but people don't cannot guarantee that short-term algorithms don't exist. And there is, in my view, actually a lot of excitement in what you can do with smaller scale, non-error-corrected quantum systems. And... In our view, that's sort of essential for the survival of the quantum industry. I, I personally believe that error correction is hugely important, but longer term, pe- people are willing to wait for. That's something that people will argue with, with me at conferences and things. But anyway, that's my view. Yeah. So I, you know, our view is that we really are interested in building up very complex and, and, and um, quantum machines, ones with enough numbers of qubits so that you can run interesting algorithms in this short-term window before you get to full error correction. And so part of the funding is us uh, working with customers, you know, pushing these devices out, uh, educating them about quantum computing, exploring with them uh, what current state-of-the-art machine learning looks like. Um, you know, that's an, a major area of focus for us. And together working out where the potential fruitful applications of these short-term devices lie and um, just because I'm, I know that many in the community don't believe this is a thing, I don't really, I don't really care. But you know, it's a ma- matter of opinion, and uh, yeah. I do think it's sort of exciting. And no one knows for sure. So because of the hardware we've got, because of the fact that the hardware that allows us to get to uh, non-error corrected, smaller scale quantum systems is the same roadmap that leads us towards error correction. It's all on the route because that product just sits with us anyway. 
we're super excited about working with customers to sort of see and explore the real unknown, you know, whether there are applications, whether there are algorithms for those types of near-term systems. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Speaking of sort of clients, a segue would be, uh, you know, I always like to ask guests, you know, what they're doing with, say, clients in the real world. Um, again, June was a busy month for Orca because you guys signed a deal with the Ministry of Defense, as you mentioned, which some have described as being exciting in that it represents an investment in quantum's potential, back to what you were saying as well, you know, rather than its readiness, perhaps, to tackle a wide range of real-world problems today, which, among other things, I have to point out, I think speaks volumes about the level of faith the UK government has in the potentially transformative power of quantum, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's really important to say that um, the, the MOD are an incredibly knowledgeable customer. So, and I know, sorry, I talk a lot about the community. Some people talk about hype or whatever. The MOD know exactly where quantum is, more than most people, to be honest. They've I'll got bet. active researchers. I'll so they know, they, yeah, they know exactly what they're buying. They know exactly the type yeah. of risks but also yep. the promise. They know the promise and they know the timescales yeah. involved in, in what's coming here. Um, so that so that said, Rich, without sharing any proprietary or sensitive information, it is the military after all. <laughs> um, can you give us a sense? I mean, certainly they. I'm sure they're very smart, as you say, but can you talk about how the MOD is planning to use your system? Maybe however yeah. you need to white label or anonymize it, but just I think our listeners would be interested to hear. Yeah, no problem. And actually, luckily for us, they've been pretty public about their uses for this oh, system, good. which is which is cool. I mean, generally speaking, they're just the, the Ministry of Defense and a lot of big organizations have a lot of complicated problems, a lot of optimization, a lot of machine learning in the in the short term that they're doing today, and obviously longer term challenges, materials, and all the rest of it. Um, but in particular, yeah, in the short term, they are very interested in. Uh, these optimization problems. I mean, they, they mentioned a few times to us that their dream, it's not there now, but their dream would be to allow better optimization in the field. And if you imagine for them, they do a lot of edge computing. So they have obviously people not in controlled environments who are analyzing a lot of data. If you sort of follow me in this type of example I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, the data they're trying to process is way more complicated than than the machines that they have uh, capable at the, at the moment. So they're very interested that sort of in the field element, even though it's a little bit science fiction, is a major sort of feature for them that they're interested in processing data very quickly in the field. I, I will say, I think you, you were going to get onto sort of variational algorithms, like hybrid algorithms. They're very interested in you know, whether you can just augment your existing computing facility uh, capabilities with quantum so not quantum not quantum in its entirety just sort of part quantum part classical so that's very important to them so that goes to the point about them wanting sort of very local quantum systems to sit side by side with their local classical processing systems yeah interesting so yeah. let's let's talk tech for a minute so i, I read that orcas pt1 quantum computer comes with proprietary software that includes access to machine learning libraries such as PyTorch. And I read the ministry says it plans to create programs for the PT1 in collaboration with partners in government and industry. So can you tell our listeners maybe a little bit more detail about what other, say, languages or libraries your solution supports? I mean, there's a yeah. long list, right? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, sorry, I missed out a part of my answer from your earlier question about you know what, what they wanted to do with it. One major part of what they want to do is sort of 
learning, education, and exploration. So they want to have, I'll be honest, we, we approached them wanting to sell them a lot of consulting services, to be honest, we, 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 which we did partly, but um, we wanted to sell them a lot of our time um, to help them develop algorithms for their applications. They Probably better for us, they chose instead to, to want to develop their own internal capabilities and also to build up the capabilities of their all of the companies that they, they're used to working with, the big, many defense type companies. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so you're spending on sort of you know, spe- other specific SDKs, APIs, IDEs that PT1 prefers? Just Yeah. So I'm sorry, to answer your question directly, it runs in Python. So it's yeah. normal sort of processing script, and it's also supported by Py- PyTorch, which is the, the classical, normal, I say in inverted commas, normal machine learning language. And what we're doing with that sort of that API is being able to allow users to just insert their quantum code in the middle of sort of the few lines of quantum code in the middle of their normal machine learning sort of scripts library. You know, it's sort of as simple as when someone's programming up their machine learning thing, there's a, a script in there that sort of chooses whether a part of that problem will be diverted towards a, the, the PT1, the, the quantum processor, or a simulated version of the quantum processor. And from that point on, you're into quantum land, but you're still programming in uh, PyTorch. You're still programming using sort of your existing machine learning language. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a way of training a physical, um, a physical circuit in a way that sort of can be used to replicate a machine learning type application. So let's talk some more about software. Again, as, the, as Orca expands to a full stack uh, uh, capabilities, right? Um, I was struck by a comment you made in an interview about the deal with the MOD, where you said that your system's able to quickly hand off tasks to classical computers and that they are planning to only use the quantum system for the most complex and challenging aspects of a task. So can you share with our listeners, you know, your perspective on this need uh, for interoperability and implications for heterogeneity in future compute systems? Maybe yeah. even up to and including other qubit modalities, if you're comfortable talking about that. Yeah, no problem. I mean, I could start generally, and um, I, I think it's pretty universally well accepted that uh, short-term algorithms, uh, if they're if if they're found to be useful, any type of short-term algorithm really really requires a heavy amount of classical compute. So they really are these hybrid algorithms where you're solving only a certain part of the problem on your quantum system or you're iterating between quantum and classical computing. So any type of, most, many, or most types of algorithms in this short-term regime do require this sort of part partitioning or, uh, or iteration between quantum and classical. And that means, when you think seriously about that, that, um, and one of my, if, if I get straight to the point, those types of algorithms heavily rely on latency. And, and you can imagine because if the latency is poor, then you're going to, your sort of runtime for any type of hybrid or iterative quantum classical algorithm is going to be very much exacerbated by whatever time it takes to offload from classical to quantum or quantum to classical. Right. So, so that handover speed is critical because you're going to be doing many thousands of iterations and every time it picks up you know, a, quant- a sort of a, your latency. And so when you start to look at sort of quantum through that lens, so let's ignore everything else. You know, we're accepting the challenge of numbers of qubits and everything else, but let's just focus on latency um, and making that a priority as well as everything else. You start to realize that 
having a local quantum system, like I said, one which sits directly next door to your classical compute, so you can have um, a very low latency bus between the two of them, rather than relying on what everyone's talking about at the moment, a cloud-based system where you have to sit in a queue, you have to wait till the system becomes available from nine to five Eastern Standard Time or whatever it is. None of that, none of that works when you're yeah. trying to approach a, uh, a system which people use for you know, commercially useful applications. Um, and so, so our, our sort of, and that applies, by the way, to every quantum computing platform. I don't mind acknowledging the excellent work people have done in this field. Regetti have got a bunch of papers trying to make sort of cloud, reducing the latency of cloud-based systems. I will say that's excellent work. The other sort of easy way to do it is just to do your, have your quantum system to be local, which is what Orca's very, very much focused on. And we've approached data centers who've sort of said, you know, we believe that the, the future is cloud. Well, it is, but cloud should really mean that you've got a quantum system co-located with your existing data center. Any, any other version of cloud, like your quantum system, is actually in an academic or industrial lab somewhere. That's not really cloud in the way that everyone thinks of cloud. Yeah. So Orca's trying to address things that way. And also just sort of by le- trying to leverage the nature of photonics, it's very fast. Um, you know, a lot of phot- photonic processing units, a lot of the, the bandwidth that we're used to working with is, is, is very, very high. So the sort of clock cycle of a photonic machine, photonic quantum machine, can be more naturally matched to the clock cycle of a, a high-performance computing system. Yeah. So a combination of all these things, by the way, we've got a big project that we've won to sort of look at um, what this really means. But integration, I do think, is... What integration, meaningful integration, is critical for the future of the quantum industry if we're really going to explore near-term useful applications. Well, let's talk about the. Um, I, I say it's, I think it's fair to say we all agree agree that um, advancing quantum is a team effort. And segue from what you were just mentioning, I read Orc was selected to lead a key Innovate UK project to develop "quote unquote" the quantum data center of the future. Which is very exciting. Bit of a cheesy uh, name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. But hey, people will remember it. Um, this is a 15-member consortium and includes private sector companies like BP and Airbus. Uh, there's another quantum company, Riverland. I spoke to Steve Burley last week about this, um, as well as five leading UK universities. So I want to get your take on how this kind of broad set of players you know, can accelerate adoption of quantum-based solutions. I'm sure there's going to be some challenges, everyone with potentially different sort of agendas or, you know, models for what works and doesn't work. But I think it's very exciting that, again, this is, uh, these 15 members represent a, a broad swath of uh, stakeholders. 100%. We're, again, really lucky that we sort of pulled together. I think we, we, we believe that what we've done is pulled together the leading players in, well, in the, some of the leading players in um, in the UK across both quantum and classical, and maybe it's related to my previous point, it's called the Quantum Data Center of the Future. We really wanted to start with leading classical network and data center researchers or owners. So we really wanted to start with the perspective of what does what does existing high performance computing and existing uh, sort of high-speed communication look like around a data center. And for that reason, we engage with, in fact, two really excellent researchers. There's a research group in University College London, UCL, who focus on most of their work working with leading companies like Microsoft on future networks 
for high performance computing and also you know university of bristol who focus on uh, modern uh, classical networks for communications so yeah. with their non-quantum perspective we wanted to see what they thought about quantum um, we wanted to see how uh, and then the the team of very capable quantum companies and researchers what we could do to fit in with the existing sort of status quo so let's not start with the assumption that we can completely change the data center of the future you know, let's not assume that we can have our own isolated room for our quantum computer to work in let's try and hear from them on what sort of works already for example you know, what, what clock speed i think one of the first things microsoft said outside of the project to us was well you're talking about doing machine learning are optical interconnects between gpus in any type of machine learning type server carry like a terabit per second of information so you know <laughs> what does that mean for what does that mean for a quantum system you know starting with you know, key challenges like this and therefore developing an architecture that works from the quantum side, but also works from the classical and sort of infrastructure side of things. Yeah, and it's really nice that we've, we are bringing these two quite different groups together, like the classical and the quantum side. And I will say, sort of communicating what we're doing, communicating even the requirements of a system, a future data center system like that. That's, yeah. that's, that's step one, just working out what the common language looks like what yeah. the common requirements look like. I look forward to seeing the output of that uh, collaboration. Very exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. I want to turn, as we come toward the end of the conversation here, I wanted to do to a favorite topic of mine, which is quantum workforce. And I want to get your insight on the challenges facing a company like Orca in finding talent, how you go about recruiting for your company. I mean, do you have affiliations with universities? I want to ask also if there's specific roles in specific disciplines that maybe are harder to fill than others. I mean, I know there's a finite number of PhDs in quantum physics, but great how, question. how do you find talent for Orca? Yeah, great question. And you, you and I have shared some skills panels before where we sort of talked at great depth about this and, yeah. and the, the quantum workforce. Skills are a challenge. Um, I think everyone in the industry recognizes that. I think... Um, you mentioned universities. We are in, in London, in the UK. We're surrounded by two, maybe more, of the world's best quantum uh, labs. So uh, labs in, in Imperial College, which, in which we have a very close number of links, collaborators, and UCL. That, that helps a lot with our quantum workforce. Yeah. Um, we spend, I spend, as you know, a lot of my time being involved in skills workshops, careers talks myself, because I believe it's so important to help people in the quantum workforce understand what a career looks like, especially outside academia. I think things have changed a lot, but I still remember the days when I was looking for my first career, my first job outside of academia. How hard that is. I really, and you, know, you know, I'm pretty blunt about how maybe poorly academia prepares you for life in industry. I think that's a bit easier now. You've got this big quantum industry that looks a lot like academia. I still think it's really hard. And I still think people don't know how to write a CV, how to apply for a job. <laughs> so, you know, all that type of stuff I'm passionate about. Um, I think the, the, the other type of skills, though, the ones that are often forgotten, especially in sort of big strategy reports and things like this, are the non-quantum related skills. I think I said in a skills workshop once, quantum has the difficulty in that quantum has been an industry in which people in quantum have spent the last 20 years only speaking to each other, only, <laughs> only yeah. just talking directly to other quantum people. And I think that means that when you want to attract uh, electronic engineers, product engineers, 
people who know who are needed to be able to scale up the number of qubits, you know, who can control systems very well without them falling over, who can take experiments and make them into a product. All of these people are essential, maybe even more so than quantum people in the future of the quantum industry. And, and of course, more so as we get to the point of scaling up and building products. Um, and that, that applies to the software side as much as the hardware side. And I think it's really hard because, as I say, people in the quantum industry are used to speaking to each other. But to engage with these people, to bring them into the industry, you have to work out, you have to articulate everything we're doing in terms of another, a different type of language, an engineering language. You have to be able to be, articulate everything we're doing and convey a lot of detailed information about schematic, schematics and requirements to a completely new set of audience. And I, I do a lot of work with trying to work with the engineering community, especially in the UK. I work with the Institute of Engineering and Technology to sort of say engineers shouldn't really be put off by all of these quantum people speaking another language. It's almost, it's almost their problem as much as it is the engineer's problem to work all this out. Yeah, but That is critical to any of these technologies becoming real, engaging with the engineering community. And I think there are many, many people in the industry, I'm trying to remember, I think it's also Chris Bacon from Google also sort of saying the same thing from his perspective on the, on the software side. Well, it's great to, to hear that perspective from you, from someone in your role at the top of this leading company. So thank you for, for sharing that. Richard, we've come to the end. I want to ask you a question, give you an opportunity to take a few minutes to sort of wax philosophic, if you will, and you know, look into your crystal ball, however, whatever metaphor we want to use, to give us a sense of where you think quantum computing might be in, say, three to five or even 10 years, and more broadly, you know, what kind of impact it's going to have on how we live and work. So yeah, great, great question. I love, love Thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to wax lyrical. <laughs> like, Please. Um, so as I've said earlier, I, I don't mind being a little controversial. I do believe passionately that with quantum systems in the near term, and I mean in the next three years, we will identify commercially relevant applications. And I know there are people in the community who violently disagree with that viewpoint, but I mean, to, to take the perspective, and I talk a lot to, obviously, that's just not my own semi-non-technical belief. That's also shared with several, uh, Ian, Ian Wormsley and Josh Nunn and several other of the technical leaders within Orca. I mean, if you imagine that a quantum system pretty quickly or already has the attribute of quantum advantage, you know, for these non-useful problems, they're classically complicated to understand, to simulate, to model, if you throw into the fact that those systems are becoming, those quantum supremacy devices are becoming programmable, it's sort of impossible in my mind to imagine that those systems will not be useful for anything useful. Yeah. I just cannot imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, and, and not specific yeah. because no one can be, no one's identified that application. But I believe I confidently that to be creative about trying to find those applications, uh, you, you will yield results. And, and that in my view, will be the critical factor for the future of quantum computing where we've got to, we've got to show something. I think um, the idea of a 10-year roadmap to error correction without some sort of commercial application or evidence on the way, I find pretty hard. Um, so that's my first answer. And then the second is also to say I also passionately believe in error correction. I believe in the, the really huge disruptive potential of quantum computing over the longer time scale. So when we reach, I, I, you know, I do obviously believe that a lot of this is just sort of 
engineering scale-up type challenges and that we do have a blueprint. And not just Orca, I think many companies have a viable blueprint to getting to very large numbers of qubits and performing error correction. So I do believe we'll be making very exciting, hugely disruptive steps forward on the error correction side as well. I just believe in the short term as well. (laughs) Yeah, I believe that's important as well. Great. Well, Richard, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. We've come to the end. I want to invite people to follow you and the company on LinkedIn. I'm going to point uh, listeners to your website. It's orcacomputing.com. There are some videos on YouTube as well. And uh, just, again, want to thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed it as well. It's been great speaking to you. Thanks again, Richard, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on your social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Richard. You can learn more about our upcoming Inside Quantum Technology event, which is going to be focused on quantum cybersecurity. It's taking place in New York City on October 25th through the 27th. You can get more info and register at iqtevent.com slash fall. Please listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already, and feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.